Welcome to Work and the Future, a podcast about tomorrow, with your host, Linda Nazareth. Well, hello, and thank you for joining us today. You know, for almost all of us, even if we work independently or remotely, we have to work with other people for at least part of the time. Maybe it's on projects or assignments, or maybe it's you know by being there all day with people, but we do have to collaborate. And sometimes that goes well, and sometimes it does not. But if there is a problem, if it doesn't go well, there's going to be cost to the work and there's going to be cost to the organization that needs people to get along and get things done. So the question is, are there ways we can learn to work with each other better to collaborate better? Because there's a lot at stake. Well, my guest today says that there are and that we should definitely be teaching collaboration as a business skill. Dr. Deb Mashek is a professor and business advisor, and she's also the author of a book that's going to be released soon. It's called Collaborate, How to Build Incredibly Collaborative Relationships at Work, Even If You'd Rather Work Alone. I had a great conversation with Deb. She talked about why and how we can collaborate better and how we can learn to do this. Please stay with us to hear it. Why is it important to teach collaboration as a business skill? How do we do that? To talk about that, I'm joined now by Dr. Deb Mashik. She's author of the upcoming book, Collaborate, How to Build Incredibly Collaborative Relationships at Work, Even If You'd Rather Work Alone. Hi, Deb. Thanks so much for joining me. It's a pleasure to be here, Linda. Thank you. You know, it's a really interesting topic because, I don't know, some of us, I think, secretly prefer to work alone, think we get more done when we're, we're not collaborating. How did you get to be the person that studies this? What's your career been like? Yeah, so the career trajectory is that I, I grew up as a, I'm a psychologist, a research psychologist, and my expertise is in the psychology of relationships. So I literally have a PhD in close relationships, which is a little bit bizarre. I got to say, as an undergrad, I had no idea such a thing even existed. And back in the day, I was studying everything from hooking up, breaking up, or really thinking about um, dyadic intimate relationships. And then when I transitioned from graduate school into my career as a professor out at Harvey Mudd College in California here in the United States, I started to think about how those relationship theories play out in community building and then how they play out in in collaboration building. In particular, I started thinking about interinstitutional collaborations and then, you know, went back to my roots as a, a relationships researcher there and really started to think then about, my goodness, we have all of these workplace relationships. The same dynamics are playing out. The same challenges are playing out. The same skills are very relevant in helping us have healthy, sustainable workplace relationships as they do in our marriages, our friendships, our parent-child relationships. So that's just the, the thumbnail sketch of what that arc looked like for me. Do you have a feel for how much time is spent on relationships, collaboration at work, and versus how much is independent? Yeah, so last, I guess it was last spring, um, I launched a, a survey with Dave Krasta, and we call it the Workplace Collaboration Survey. And we located 1,100 people in the United States, all of whom were employed full-time, and asked them, what percentage of your day do you spend in you know, collaborating. And we had given a definition of what that is too. And the the number was incredible. And I, I don't have it right off the top of my head. I want to say it was 3.2 hours per day 
spent collaborating with others. So whether that's in meetings, sitting in, you know, side by side, working on projects, giving responses to, you know, somebody sends you a document and they want feedback on it and you're jumping in and leaving comments and that people are doing together work. The root actually of um, collaboration is co-labor. So together work uh, is really significant proportion of their day. Well, it's interesting. I think we've had a better idea of this since the pandemic because of all of the teleconferencing. People say, well, I'm looking at my screen all day because I have to deal with people. Uh, And I don't think I realized it was that many meetings, but it seems that it is. Okay, it's a hard question, but your book says collaborate, okay? How many people don't like this, think they would be better off doing less? So there are a couple different answers to that. One is when I ask people, um, have you ever had a collaboration that was absolutely horrendous? Something like 70% say, yeah, me. Um, but if you also ask, and have you ever had a collaboration that was absolutely incredible, like unicorns flying through the sky level stuff? Most people have had that also, which means that as individuals, our experiences, we have this love-hate relationship with collaboration. We know it's amazing. We know this is how we can, you know, create the most inspired products and save the world, that sort of thing. But we also know that is absolutely fraught with frustration, with dropped balls, with people not doing their stuff. And so we have kind of this this love-hate. That said, most people um, say that they don't mind doing it, that they like doing it, but they like doing it with skilled partners. You know, you said 70% have had a negative experience. That seems really low. It'd be hard to get through a career without having a negative experience with this. And it would seem like a lot of time is wasted. In this. Yep. Right. And I do think there are some people who have decided, who have written it off, um, who are saying like, I, I don't want to do that. And, you know, they're the ones who are self-selecting into careers where they don't have to do it or sabotage, excuse me, sabotaging those collaborations that they are in fact a part of such that they're never invited back again, or saying no to anything that's um, collaborating with, you know, those people that they already know are not going to be particularly responsive or accountable. And so people can kind of design their work world to bypass the really heavy lift collaborations where you really do need to be orchestrating, you know, everything from feedback loops to how work is structured, how work is rewarded, all those, all those pieces that go into moving, especially the really long-term big projects forward. It's, it's an incredible feat of human relationships that that can even happen. So organizations have a lot at stake here, right? If you're asking people to collaborate all day for three hours or whatever, you want them to do it well. And do they realize that? Do they put any time into to helping people with that? So one of the questions we asked on this survey is, Curiosity, how much professional development have you received in how to collaborate well? And by the way, before I say what the percentage was for the workplaces, I asked that same question of a a different sample of college students who are expected to do group work all the freaking time. They don't get any training in how to do group work in college either. It's the big surprise. You know, students hate group work. I, when my kiddo was in the third grade, I asked, or he came home and just was, livid that he had to work with so-and-so who took control of everything and who did everything herself. And I never want to work with anybody ever again. And he was in third grade. It turns out that all the way up through college, we're not teaching people how to do this either. So when we launched the workplace collaboration survey, I asked people, I was like, so how much 
professional development is your organization providing? And the answer was desperately little. So um, 30% of people said they had received no, absolutely no <laughs> uh, professional development in this. Another handful had received maybe a few minutes, which cracks me up because I'm pretty sure that means they either read a Dilbert cartoon or maybe watched a TikTok video and somehow that's that's counting as professional development. And only about one quarter had self-report having received anything that I would consider actual training in um, in this critical skill. And, and those people said, you know, it's been more than a couple hours. So, you know, perhaps they did a course or maybe they're the ones who are coming in with an MBA if this happened to be in their MBA programs. Though I've also talked to a lot of MBA or professors in business schools. They also say they assign this stuff all the time, but they expect you know, the students are adults at this time, at this point, they should know how to do it. And so they're not investing in their students' ability to do this critical work either. Okay, I think this is because it's called a soft skill, right? And there's a little bit more respect now for soft skills, a realization we need them. But for a long time, I don't think there was. And we certainly didn't train for them. How do you do it? Because I think the the, the professors assigning this and the managers probably say, you know, didn't they learn this in preschool? right? By third grade, shouldn't they've had it down? How do you think they should be doing it now? Right. And, and what's fascinating about that is none of them received training either. So I think part of the reason we're not teaching it is because we were never taught it. And therefore, we suck her into this social myth that somehow you're either good or bad at relationships, and there's nothing you can really do to fix it. And just, you know, as a, as a close relationships researcher, I like to point out that we have that same mythology for our romantic relationships. We don't teach people how to do those. We don't teach parenting skills. We might, at least in the United States, like there are a lot of birthing classes, but then it's like assuming that once you have the baby, like somehow you're just going to be a good parent, which is ludicrous. Um, but so there aren't a lot of skills training courses in how to be a good friend, that sort of thing. That mythology carries forward into the workplace where we're like, well, we can't possibly just teach people how to, how to collaborate well. But like all relationships, there are better and worse things that you can do if you want that relationship to be strong. And so what, um, and maybe we'll talk about the, the or I can, I, you already mentioned the book. So I can say in Clabber Hate, what I do is basically offer a psychology of relationships course applied to our workplace collaboration. So things that are, we know are validated strategies for creating healthy relationships. I, I describe those and say, you know, Here's how you use self-disclosure to create connection. Here's what responsiveness is and how to set expectations around you know, how we should be responsive and things like that. So there are some really concrete tactics for creating those good relationships that create the foundation for effective collaboration. So, you know, I like to, I, I talk to a lot of project managers, for instance, and they're like, oh, but we've got these amazing tools and these amazing processes. And, you know, we've got a, a checklist and a Trello book board for this and all those sorts of things. They're, those processes and tools are absolutely essential. And I, I would never say, oh, you should go do collaboration without those. But if you're not also thinking about how do I create an amazing relationship, it's like cooking without salt. It's like this, this thing that makes all of this work well and, and vibrant is missing. So it, it's worth investing in. All right, let's talk about the concrete steps. You're a project manager. You know you have a lot of maybe diverse personalities coming together on a project. You want them to work harmoniously. What are the things you should be thinking about? I mean, one of the, the basic ones is 
to start to, to hold time very deliberately for people to actually get to know each other. Um, and, you know, you were mentioning how many Zoom meetings and whatnot we're on. I don't know about you, but I am shocked the number of Zoom meetings that I'll pop on. Clearly, other people are in the room. Everybody's working on paying the last few invoices, knocking out a few more emails, and it's crickets in the room. And this is such a precious space to actually start having conversation, getting to know somebody, being able to say things like, Linda, I see, I see behind you, that plant is gorgeous, that shape, you know, tell me about that. So inviting people into conversation about their interests. Their um, the, what they're doing in their life. I, yeah, you know, I, I mentioned I have a kiddo, and when I see sitting over somebody's shoulder, the you know the bag full of all of the baseball gear or something from their kiddo, I'll say, "Gosh, you know, I I'm a little league mom too. Love it, but man, I need to find a better seat to sit in those dang bleachers with. That really hurts my booty. Like things like that, where it's just it's conversation. So that that's one of the most basic ones is holding space for that, valuing it, knowing that it's it's a worthwhile endeavor. Another simple one is how do you create expectations around some really basic things like where are we going to store our shared files? Do we have a naming convention we would like to use? What about our responsiveness? What is our expected response time for um, different sorts of communications? Are we going to be working? Um, are we expected to respond? Or are we expected not to respond after five o'clock, six o'clock? What about on the weekends? And then even saying things like, what are you most excited to get out of this collaboration? Because it, it could be that that other person is looking to knock it out of the park, do the A++ work, get recognition, get a promotion out of it. What if they're in a collaboration with someone who's like, I'm doing bare minimum on this one. I'm so overloaded with a million other projects. Unless we've had that conversation, I don't have a context for when, you know, when you decide to like not quite do all of the, the pieces. Um, and so, and then there are these other pieces where if you're saying you're, ex you're excited to upskill through this particular collaboration to learn something new, I can invest in your success. And thus in the group's success by finding ways of supporting that, that work. But again, we don't know any of this unless we're having these conversations. So um, those are just a, a couple, and I could I don't want to ramble on the whole time, but there are all these really specific things that we can be doing that improve that relationship quality. And you've also written about modeling collaborative behavior. What does that mean? So when we are up at the top, so as the manager, the director, you know, I think sometimes we carry the sense that we're supposed to know how to do everything or exactly what needs to be done or that we only show our most finished work because of the sense that we're going to be evaluated on it. And we don't really, you know, want to open ourselves up to that vulnerability. But this whole idea of being vulnerable, I think, is important in the context of collaboration, too, to be able to say things like, hey, this is some stuff I spit out last night or, you know, on the back of an envelope while I was, you know, sitting there putting my kid to bed or something. I haven't thought through this, but I want to share the ideas with you. So like trusting other people to share the, the half-baked work and knowing that they'll hold you you and your needs in enough high regard that they're not going to rip it apart. Um, but, you, you know, you can start small. So that's an example of how to model it. Another is to be frank when, you know, when often, again, in the leadership role, you're the one who's invited to go stand behind the podium, present to the board, go to the conference, share the work. Your name might be the first author on the, the industry report or something like that. 
that's all lovely. But I guarantee a whole bunch of other people were behind the scenes busting their butts to help create this amazing product that you're getting the accolades for. So taking that two minutes, that one minute even at the top of your presentations to give credit where credit is due, to um, go ahead and use the we, the we word when in fact it was a shared collective without hiding behind we for either, you know, I, I feel uncomfortable about taking credit for what I did. Like it's still good to take credit for your own work, but giving other people credit for their work is a great way to model it. Being intentional about saying whose voices are not at this table. My gosh, it seems like I keep meeting with the same people all the time. Is there maybe somebody else, you know, in the office or in uh, in the company who would have something to say here? And how do we invite those people in? And um, those are those are some examples of what it means to model collaborative behavior. And also, you know, related to that is being intentional about looking for it and naming it when you see it, and uh, and celebrating it on, on the team or you know, hey, that, Linda, that response you gave to Carl on that email was so, I, I, I don't know if you noticed, but I loved that you were in offering um, your resources or contributing in a way that you didn't have to, noticed and appreciated. You know, another thing that managers are not well trained in is how to manage remote work. People are struggling with that. You mentioned vulnerability. Yeah, it's nice if you can show that, but it's sort of learning by doing. So how does how do the two things come together? You're trying to help people be collaborative. And at the same time, you're not really seeing them in person the way we used to pre-pandemic. Does it change a lot? Yeah. So, I mean, when we made that big transition in March, 2020, and all of a sudden we were, you know, all of us were slammed into that remote space. One of the things I kept thinking about is closing time at the bar where, you know, someone says, okay, last call for alcohol. And then those lights come on and you, you know, you realize that this, this place you've been sitting for the last couple hours is actually really freaking disgusting. And, you know, there are weird dust bunnies and sticky spots all over the bar that um, COVID was kind of like a last call in terms of revealing the, the problems that were already there all along and how we work on teams and in how we're collaborating. Um, unfortunately, or, or I should say when we're in person, a lot of that can be kind of papered over. Like you'll have a particularly skilled person who's like covering basically for everybody else. So that was at the point of transition um, into remote work for a lot of us, where I think it revealed our poor collaborative behaviors. That said, at this point, you know, a few years in, we have entire teams that have never met each other. And I know those existed before, but they're more common now where everybody on the team has been onboarded during remote work. They maybe never been in the same room together. It turns out though, that the same um, behaviors that are good in person are also good in remote work. That said, we might need to be more intentional about, you know, if um, say your colleague gets an earful from the boss during a meeting, and you get a text afterward from the colleague saying like, well, that was interesting. You can't just like, let's run and grab a coffee and talk about it. But you can reply back to them of, hey, how are you doing with that? Or, you know, putting a note on your calendar to follow up with them the next day. Like, hey, are you feeling, are you feeling any better right now? Because it's harder to do, um, you know, remotely. You're not just going to have that in-person reminder of that person walking by your desk and you know, giving you the look of like, get me out of here or something like that. So we almost have to be more attuned to it. But still those three, that trilogy, if you need people and good relationships, tools and processes still exist. It's just that the shape of those has shifted a little bit in the context of the remote work. 
Maybe you can't answer this, but do you think mindsets have changed? I mean, are people in a good mood about this? Or everyone's been under so much stress for a couple of years. Is this getting harder or easier? Oh, that's such a good question. I wish I had, I wish I had the, the kind of data longitudinally that could answer that for us. But what we do know is that people who have at least, no, let me say it differently, people who have high quality collaborative relationships. They, their job satisfaction is higher, their um, willingness to work collaboratively is higher, and their mental health is better. So, um, but, but what that also means is if they have even just one negative collaborative relationship, they're carrying that stress home, uh, or, you know, when they shut the keyboard, it's there sitting at the kitchen table with them. Um, but even having just one of these not great, one of these collaborate relationships tanks, job satisfaction, morale, things like that, that, that we want. So are we getting better at it? I think we're getting more practice at it. I think we're probably at the point where we've got our, our sea legs under us and we know what works for us. But I think we're also probably at the point where we've stabilized a bit and realizing there might be, there might be more to this that I can be curious about, that I can learn about, that I can implement to, to maybe elevate um, my experience of work. Uh, my experience at the team, the team's ability to do amazing things, and thus I would say the organization's ability to really accomplish its goals as well. It'll be really interesting to see where we go the next couple of years as we we're further into this process. Deb, thank you so much for talking to me today. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate the invitation, Linda. Dr. Deb Mashek is the author of the upcoming book, Collaborate, How to Build Incredibly Collaborative Relationships at Work Even If You'd Rather Work Alone. Well, that's it for today. If you'd like to know more about Deb and the upcoming book, please take a look at our show notes. You'll find some links there. If you'd like to get in touch with me, I'm on Twitter at, at @relentlesseco. Now, if you did like this episode about the future of work, if you like these discussions, please take a moment and leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. That's what helps people find us and it'll help keep these conversations going. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks as always to Stokely Audio for audio production. To learn more about work and the future and to see show notes, go to the workandthefuturepodcast.com. You can also contact us at comments at the workandthefuturepodcast.com. The Work and the Future Podcast with Linda Nazareth is a relentless economics production.